Christ the King Sunday. <clears throat> Not only is this the last day of the Christian year, um, but it's a special day, I think, to set aside and remember that even though the world is constantly shifting and uh, lately it just seems the unrest or the divisions are more palpable even in our own backyard, um, one thing does remain constant, and that is that Christ is on the throne. The risen and reigning one is king uh, over all creation, including over the earth and over this country and over Bellingham and over you. Um, now, over the course of this series and the Ten Commandments, we've seen many similarities between laws of ancient civilizations and ancient kings and the laws of ancient Israel, the Ten Commandments. One major distinction we've been making throughout this series, though, is the difference between our God and King and the kings of the world. The kings of the ancient world would conquer a people, enslave them, and then give them laws to make sure that they stayed in line and kept in order. The laws were there, and they were designed to serve the king and the social elite and to keep everyone else in check. It's a very different scenario from what happened in Israel. The Hebrew people were enslaved by the Egyptians, and they cried out to Yahweh, to God, and through the leadership of Moses, whom God appointed, and these amazing, mighty deeds that God performed in Egypt, he liberated the Hebrew people, and he brought them out of slavery from Egypt and into the, uh, into the wilderness on the way to the promised land. God is a God who saves first and foremost. The God who gives us the law, who gives us the Ten Commandments, is primarily the, primarily the liberating God, the life-giving God, the rescuing God. Second, the Ten Commandments are incredible because they're not given to us just by some earthly king trying to have order in his kingdom. They're given by God, and that means that we have a God who speaks to us that he loves us enough to share a bit of his heart, to share a bit about what's important to him with regular people like you and me. And third, what we find as we dig into the Ten Commandments is that God deeply desires our health. The Ten Commandments do reveal God's heart, but more than that, they reveal our broken hearts. They were given to help us actually to help the newly formed people of God to see a different vision for what life could be like in comparison to the nations where they had come from and com in comparison to the nations where they were going. The Ten Commandments are for human thriving. And this evening, we're going to explore the Tenth Commandment. You shall not cover, covet, I, I cover, who said that earlier? Pepe. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Pray with me. Lord, as we enter your word um, and put, uh, I guess, a comma, not a full stop on this series in Exodus, we thank you for the journey. And we thank you for showing us how each of these Ten Commandments, which many of us had probably written off as old and archaic and dry and so Old Testament, God, are full of actually of grace, full of revelation for, uh, for our lives today. And I pray that this would be no different. Holy Spirit, would you minister to us as we open this word, and would you um, help us to understand a little bit more of what it meant and what it means? And I thank you that you're not 
just a God who convicts and shows us what things mean, but you also empower us to obey. So would you help us to take that next step as well and uh, surrender ourselves so that we can find life in you. Amen. Thou shalt not covet. I like the shall not, I don't know. What does it mean to covet? The term covet translates a Hebrew word, hamad. You have to say it with a guttural thing. In fact, like when you transliterate it, it's not like hamad. There's a K before it, so you get that real hamad. You want to try that one? Some of you have to clear your throat anyway. Hamad, yep. Hamad means to desire passionately, to take pleasure in. It means craving. It means a desire of the heart that leads to action. I'm going to read a story from the book of 1 Kings 21, and I want you to take notes, and what I want you to take notes on is, do any of the characters in the story break any of the Ten Commandments? And if they do, which ones do they break? 1 Kings 21. Now it came about after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for my vegetable garden, because it is so close to my house, and I will give you a better vineyard in its place if you like. If you like, I'll give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's, So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, for he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. So basically he had a tantrum, right? But Jezebel, his wife, came into him and said to him, how is it that your spirit is so sullen and that you're not eating food? So he said to her, well, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and he said, And I said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I'll give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in the city. Now, she wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men beside him and let them testify against him saying, You cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the men of the city, the elders and the nobles who lived in this city did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people. Then the two worthless men came in and sat before him, and the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth, before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city, and they stoned him to death with stones. And then they sent word to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned to death. And when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is now is not alive, but is dead. And when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, 
Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Yes, that's in the Bible. What did you hear? I know there's lots of opinions, lots of things we could talk about. I'm not preaching on that text. What commandments did you hear broken? False witness. Murder. Covetousness. Stealing. Yeah. Murder. Yeah. Those are the ones that I came up with. I, I thought one more could be taking the Lord's name in vain because as the king representing God to the people, he's pretty crooked. Um, so that could be another one. In the story of Naboth's vineyard, we see a clear example of someone breaking the 10th commandment. But let's make a clear distinction before we move on. Ahab's sin was coveting Naboth's vineyard. His sin was not coveting Notice that in the commandment in Exodus 20, 17, it gives us concrete examples. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The sin isn't coveting in general. The sin is coveting something or someone that's already spoken for, someone or something that is rightfully someone else's or in their fold or in their circle of care. The unspoken assumption here is that to covet is natural and even good if the object of one's desire is good. Does that sound a little bit off to you? That somehow covetousness could actually be a good thing? I don't know, it makes me sound funny even saying those words. Does it sound off to you a little bit? If it does, if it doesn't, that's fine. If it does, like it does to me, it's probably because you and I have been so influenced by other religions and philosophies that are not Jewish or Christian in the first place. Some religions and philosophies teach that desire in itself is a bad thing, that we should seek to be in a state where we really desire nothing and have no attachments to the world. The Jedi are like that. Come on now. Sorry, I, I like the Jedi, but I disagree with on some, on some things like that one. Such an idea to be dispassionate about everything would be uh, unthinkable for the Hebrew mindset or the early Christian mind. After all, we're talking about a people who worship a God who is described as passionate and feeling and emotive and sometimes described as jealous for our love and affection. In some passages in the Bible, we are encouraged to kamad, to covet. We are encouraged to kamad, the word of God. And in some other passages, God himself kamad, or is passionate for Israel and Mount Zion. Since the Ten Commandments are about human thriving, what I don't want this to turn into this evening is, here are three ways not to covet. That's <laughs> so negative, right? Um, what I want to do instead is turn our attention to three avenues of grace given to us by God so that we can covet correctly. We can covet correctly. The first move towards coveting to cor correctly, I think, is giving thanks. Giving thanks to God for all the good things he's done, for all the good things that he does, and for all the good things that he provides for us. 
the story of Adam and Eve comes instantly to mind as I was thinking about this idea. Adam and Eve, our ancestors, are created by God. They're placed in this amazing garden. They're given important work, so they have value already, stuff to do during the day. Uh, They're the caretakers of the garden of the creation. They got to name the plants and the animals. They got to enjoy the trees and the rivers and the mountains and the valleys. Sounds amazing. They had communion with nature, and most of all and best of all, they had unbroken communion with God and with each other. God gave them all of those good things. God gave them delicious fruit to eat from every tree in the garden. He gave them everything they needed and much more. And yet there was one fruit from one tree of all the other stuff they could do and eat that he said, stay away from for your own good. The book of Genesis says that the serpent puts doubts about God's goodness into the mind of Eve through subtle lies and through half-truths. He said to her, indeed, has... Satan always has an English accent, right? I don't know why I just said that. Indeed. I know, that's so bad. As soon as it came out of my mouth, anyway, I'll just roll it. Indeed, has God said to you, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden, right? You can just see him kind of doing this. I don't know if he does that. Does he have hands? He's a snake, right? Anyway, of course, of course that, that statement that the serpent makes is entirely or almost entirely untrue. God actually gave permission to eat from all the trees in the garden except for one. But as the story goes, we read that the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was delightful to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. And she took from its fruit and ate and gave some to her husband, and he also ate. Delight to the eyes and desirable. Behind those two English words is a mirror to the Hebrew word for covet. Eve shifted her, the, the attention of her desire to an object that she didn't yet have, an object she was forbidden to have. Rather than giving thanks for all the massive amount of gracious abundance that God had already provided, Eve chose to fix her gaze on something narrow and something selfish. And it's so easy to do. We come to take the good things in our life for granted because they're always there, apparently. And we see something else that looks good that we don't yet have and we want it. And then once we begin to covet, we lose touch with the reality of all the good things that God's already given us and how much he loves us and what we've already got going on. And this happens all the time. I mean, we could go on and on talking about how it happens with people. Um, but let's talk about just our stuff. You know, our car is fine, but now there's a new model with better gas mileage and a few more features, and I stop being thankful for what I have, what I'm actually in, and all I can see when I look out the glass is all the other cars that are a little newer than mine, and I kind of want it. Or you've got a phone that's two years old, it makes calls, it takes all your photos, it does all the stuff you needed to do, but there's this new phone, and the battery lasts like 30 minutes longer because you're always so far from a plug-in, right? Or it, the new phone is like, fourth of an ounce lighter because phones are so heavy. I mean, come on. Or it takes pictures with 52 megapixels, but your eyes stop being able to tell the difference like three iterations ago, right? Because they're all so good. They're so much better. But, yep, I gotta have it. <laughs> gotta have it. Your job pays the bill, bills, gives you good benefits, and you like what you do pretty much. In fact, you, you like going there for the most part, but there's this one guy that kind of drives you up the wall, or there's this one lady at work that's... Pfft, 
she bugs me so bad, or this one new policy isn't quite cool. And all of a sudden, if we're not careful, we begin to covet the greener pastures on the other side of the proverbial fence. Our happiness is stolen because not because we don't have good work to do, but because we're coveting different ideals and different expectations. The practice of thanksgiving can counteract that poison of coveting. Thanksgiving places our desire and our affection on the one who gives us the good stuff in the first place, the one who loves us. And, and, and offering thanksgiving on a regular basis, just whether you journal it or you pray at the end of the day, God, thanks for these 10 things. In fact, that's an exercise. If you're looking for one, you can have a blank piece of paper on your nightstand or whatever, have 10 blanks, have five blanks if you're too tired, and just put five things you're thankful for. It's amazing. And oftentimes, once you start with the five, you're like, oh, there's actually six or seven, and you just, you just got to keep going, right? It, it can counteract the poison of covetousness. What if, rather than coveting what you don't have, as far as things or other ideals, you covet something like the fruit of the Spirit. That would be coveting correctly. Like, could you imagine God not wanting you to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Like, do you think he would be ticked if you were asking or coveting that type of character quality? I think he'd be like, yes, that's awesome. There's all kinds of things that we can turn our our attention, our desire, our coveting toward that are healthy and good and God-given. There's such freedom in contentment and appreciation. But let's be honest, the whole system is rigged. We talk about contentment and appreciation, but we're up against so much. The media, the ad companies, the things vying for your attention all the time are there to simply suggest that you aren't happy, that you deserve to be happy, and that if you buy their product, you will be happy. Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willimon co-wrote a book on the ethics of the Ten Commandments from a Christian perspective. And I found this little throwaway anecdote fascinating, um, and I want to read it to you. A friend of ours had a grandfather who was one of the founders of Woolworth's department store. His grandfather's great contribution, which was was to revolutionize merchandising, was the bright idea to put merchandise out on tables and in showcases for everyone to see. Before that invention, people would enter a store and tell a clerk what they wanted. The clerk would go and obtain for them the merchandise way back in the storage area and present it to the customer for purchase. His grandfather was the first to lay the merchandise out on the table to be seen and touched and savored. And the rest is history. His invention was perfect for a people who now no longer know how to even name what we want. Show us everything, and we'll invent a desire for it all. Isn't that true? The catalogs, I remember when I was a kid, it was catalogs. They would come out, and all, you know, right before Christmas, I gotta have that toy and that. I didn't even know half these things existed, but the catalog told me and created the desire Of all the commercials and storefront displays, and even over against the Apple store, (laughs) the biggest enemy of contentedness, an ally of covetousness, is community. Humans, right, we're intensely communal. And whether we like to admit it or not, we have adapted to follow the crowd. And in many circumstances, that's a really healthy healthy adaptation. There's safety in numbers. 
velociraptors coming after you or whatever, it's like, it's, it's good to be in the middle and have, be not the slowest person. When someone has a great idea, uh, like a really good idea, following the crowd is a great way to like implement the idea. Like you can benefit a lot from really smart people and thinking. But of course we know it can have disastrous effects as well because we all want to fit in. And so when the crowd starts to live in a covetous way or when that becomes part of our culture, it's really difficult to separate yourself out from that. One kind of side example is uh, last week our PTO at Parkview had a meeting and the presentation by the school counselor and the librarian was on tech safety, basically. And it's just such a different landscape from when I was a kid. Um, we didn't have cell phones at all. They weren't the thing until after Corey and I were dating and got married. Uh, I think we had four computers in my school. There were the Apple II or whatever, the green screen ones. That I think we just played like Star Trek or something and like little, I thought there was only for games, right? Um, it's just such a different world that we live in. And this one mom that was sitting at the table with us has a middle school daughter. And she was saying that, you know, like, we, we're the family that doesn't have TV, that has no smartphones. We, they have one computer in the house, and the kids kind of do their homework on it. And she was saying, like, we're finding it really hard now to maintain those boundaries because our daughter is feeling literally like left out because kids are communicating on social activities and birthday parties and what's going on through texting and through Instagram and she's feeling like the crowd, the pull is just pulling them in this other direction. Um, and on the one hand, I just saw like her kind of getting deflated and discouraged and it was sad but on the other hand, here's all these like newbie parents that I don't have a middle schooler yet and just saying like, no, 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 we'll be the parents that, you know, stick with you, and maybe our kids can all be friends and not have all this crap, you know, all this stuff, because there, there can be safety in numbers, too. This isn't a whole lecture on technology. That's not my point. My point is the power of crowds and the power of community. <clears throat> How do we covet correctly in that kind of climate? One way, and I want to encourage you, one way is by doing what you're doing right now. Gathering as a community is as the church. We gather together. We worship together. We gather to hear the word of God together, to sing songs of praise together. And as we sing those songs, the truth of those, those words are, are entering into our hearts. And we remind ourselves in this community what is truly important in, the li in, in life and what values are actually worth coveting. Some of the kids from this church, as we mentioned earlier, went shopping th uh, this morning to provide Thanksgiving meals for some local families. And we talked a little bit about poverty and uh, looked at some ways that uh, we're all impoverished, even those of us who have physical possessions. And you can't really overestimate, I think, the importance of that kind of spiritual formation. Is it a small thing to go to Fred Meyer and shop for seven families? Yeah, it's extremely small. But your character is the sum total of all the small decisions you make every day. Life isn't about mountaintop experiences, it's about what we do in the everyday decisions. And by being part of the community of Jesus, you're being exposed to opinions and values I hope that will help you covet the kingdom over the things of the world. So don't neglect meeting together, preaching to the choir. Don't treat worship as optional. I know you're here right now. But worship isn't a spectator sport. It, it will help you covet correctly, like change your heart, your compass bearing. 
So, so far we've seen how the practice of thanksgiving can help us resist uh, the temptation to covet what we don't have and to rejoice in what we do have. And we've seen how Christian community can provide positive social influence to help us covet the things of God rather than the things of the world. And third, I want to suggest uh, that in the end, thanksgiving and community of God aren't enough. (laughs) Sorry, they're not enough if we don't also have a vision for life in the kingdom. We heard the scripture reading that Jen read from Luke 12 earlier in the service. In that story, a man in this parable has a very good year in his business. His crops are amazingly productive, and he decides that what he should do is amass his wealth in storage so that he can live off the surplus. He has this inner dialogue find it kind of interesting actually he talks to his soul and he says soul you have many good things laid up for yourselves for many years to come take your ease eat and drink and be merry and this guy is literally by the way you had figured it out he's living the american dream in first century palestine he has more than he needs and he stores it up and he decides to do what to live the good life for himself he's made it his goal he self-declares, is to take his ease, to withdraw from work so he can enjoy himself. And the problem is that this ideal is so ingrained in our culture that you may be thinking, and what's the moral of the story? I don't see a problem yet. Um, After all, that's what so many people you and I encounter have as their personal goal. Save enough for retirement so that you can take your ease. And one of the great heroes of our age is the person who is able to retire early. feels like when I get together with relatives, they're always, you know, telling me the story about, well, you know, your classmate, you know, they did really well in X, Y, and Z, and uh, they're going to retire at 50, or, you know, and and that's kind of like the folk hero, like that's the dream, right? Like to, to get your work in and then just chill out. The problem here is that Jesus doesn't have a problem with wealth. He says, you fool, This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you've prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This man in the story, his problem is not that he has lots of stuff. It's not even that he retires early. His problem is he has no regard for anyone but himself. He doesn't seem to feel the least bit responsible toward anyone else in his world. He doesn't seem to see that his abundance might possibly give him the ability to be a blessing for other people. In fact, he's so unwilling to see that side of his life that he tears down his barn so he can build bigger ones, like goes to extra works so he can keep his stuff. And God doesn't condemn this man for being rich. The problem is not with his wealth, it's with his use of wealth. So this third avenue to coveting correctly is to covet the kingdom of God rather than your own personal comfort and pleasure. Of course, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And that doesn't mean in a place. Heaven is a way of talking about God. Put your treasure in the kingdom of God, in the in the works of God, 
For where your treasure is, there your heart, your desire, your covetousness will be. Your energy, your focus, that's where it will be. So where is your treasure? I'm asking myself the same question. Where's your treasure? Where is your heart? What do you covet? Personal freedom, comfort, or are you growing in coveting and in desiring uh, in order to act on the way of Jesus. That's where I'm wrestling with. And it seems like every time I figure I solve one of the issues of my covetousness, another one reveals itself. That's probably God's mercy. I couldn't handle all of my sin at the same time. But I want to encourage you to wrestle with that. Um, because I think it's life-giving once we die to those pieces and start living for a greater vision, a bigger vision, the kingdom of God. That's really not the close of this story. On this Christ the King Sunday, let me close by reminding myself and all of us what Jesus covets. Jesus covets the will of his Father and the salvation of humanity. Jesus is so passionate for God's will and your salvation and mine that he emptied himself of his rights and he emptied himself of his privileges. And he willingly and painfully stepped down from an existence where he was free from sin and he was free from weakness and free from death and he became all three so that we could have life. That's how much he coveted your love and your salvation. He gave himself to be betrayed by a close friend. He gave himself to mocking by those who he came to save and he died a humiliating death. And all because he was able to covet something greater. And that greater thing for which he died is you and me, and it's our neighbors, and it's our friends, and it's our co-workers, and it's the person who disagrees with our politics and our religion. What a king we have in Jesus. What a savior. If you find, like I often do, that your heart is divided that it is coveting people that will lead, uh, or, or things that will lead to death. Jesus isn't like in the habit of condemning you over and over again. He says, come to me, even now, choose life. He says, confess, and I will forgive you. He says, let go of those dead end kings and covet correctly, covet a relationship with me. Would you pray with me? Lord, every time I think about Christ the King Sunday, I can't help but think of all the different kinds of king you could have been. I don't remember getting to vote for you or getting to have a say in what kind of king you are, which in some ways is so terrifying that you could have been a horrible king, uh, a tyrant. And you are not. You are good. And you are gracious. And you are sovereign. And you are a God who gives of himself to rescue us. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm thankful that you are so different than any other leader in this world. You are so different from any other king that this world has ever seen. Because you just give yourself away. Help us, Lord, to receive your reign. 
Help us to to develop a taste, a passion, a covetousness for the things of your kingdom, for the things that are important to you. And help us to die to those things that lead to death, even though they shine and sparkle like gold. Help us, Lord.